This week, the Comics Guys Explain, Dwayne McDuffie, Part 2. Yes, thank you, Ben. Last time, we talked about uh, Dwayne McDuffie and sort of where Milestone Comics was uh, just about to start. Uh, And this time, we're going to pick up with uh, the launch of their first three uh, big flagpole titles. Uh, So, uh, Darren, who are these first Milestone characters? So like we said, it was mostly at this point, Dwayne McDuffie was working with Dennis Cowan and with a couple of other creators. Christopher Priest wasn't officially there anymore, but he had done a lot of the work uh, getting them set up and in creating the the, the Bible for their universe that was uh, uh, so well received by DC. And so they looked at the setup that they, they, they would eventually start with four titles, but the first ones that they put together were the three that they thought were the core to have in a superhero universe, right? Like in their opinion, the core key characters of the big two that they that filled a need that you couldn't really have the kind of superhero universe they were creating without them were basically Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man, right? They needed a, a character who would like kind of like fill each of those niches uh, to be kind of the, the core the, the the archetypes basically that like they could then build on top of. But of course they ran their, you know, kind of very uh, in, independent changes on those core characters. Um, Icon is, uh, in, you know, is like Superman. He's an alien um, who comes to earth uh, and, uh, you know, becomes incredibly powerful and, uh, you know, becomes kind of like the, the, the key caped, you know, Titan hero, except of course that he arrives on earth in America in 1839 and his alien life pod, uh, is discovered by, and therefore he takes on the physical form of an American slave, right? And so spends most of the time, most of his life, the first, uh, you know, 150 or whatever years that he spends on Earth, he spends hiding his powers because a, you know, a black man, uh, you know, can't, can't, can't be this way. And he started out as a slave, right? Like he obviously eventually like fakes his death and then, uh, you know, builds a new identity, et cetera. But in, until uh, kind of like the beginning of the timeline, he's been in hiding this entire time. And he eventually meets a teen heroine uh, uh, character, Raquel, uh, who discovers his identity and kind of basically, you know, kicks him in the ass and, and forces him to, uh, you know, adopt a superhero identity and, you know, like start using his powers for good again, while she, uh, you know, who has no powers uh, to start out with, eventually gets some uh, technological devices that allow her to at least sort of keep up with her, you know, adult partner, basically. Um, Static uh, is, uh, you know, is a, a street kid in uh, Dakota City, basically, is a, you know, he's, he's a, a, a teen. He's not a street kid in that he, he's not like he's homeless or anything, um, but he, you know, is comes from a, a poor family um, and, uh, you know, has, a, a, you know, um, kind of a, a sensibility that is similar to Spider-Man's at the time, right? Like of like kind of like being the, you know, the 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 smart ass teenager uh who is you know like far too smart to uh you know like put up with uh, a lot of the silliness and is is the 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 one kind of like making fun of the concept of being a superhero while still learning kind of you know like the process of becoming a hero 
and he is exposed to uh you know like strange chemicals basically that give him uh the power to uh manipulate and control electromagnetic energy so that he can you know like shoot lightning bolts and that sort of thing but he can also control magnetism kind of like magneto right like he can you know manipulate metal and that sort of thing as well um and then the third hero was hard war um who was a uh you know brilliant scientist he uh who uh was working for a businessman uh who had uh the reputation of being a benefactor to the world of having this great kind of like positive reputation and changing the world uh you know with his various like gadgets but uh hardware very quickly kind of like determines that he's actually a bad guy he's actually evil he's actually uh you know doing um some like pretty awful stuff and the first work that hardware does for this uh benefactor is basically stolen from him and he gets no credit for it and he gets no money for it uh and uh you know it turns out his contract with this guy is you know is 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 unbreakable um and so he creates a costumed identity and starts using the gadgets he has not turned over to his boss uh to um incidentally kind of like fight crime and be a you know kind of like robin hood against a you know like corporate evil but really primarily to you know screw with his uh with, with his boss basically and so it becomes this very kind of like afrofuturistic uh sci-fi series about this creator uh you know kind of like the 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 the, the first real kind of like african-american gadgeteer so each of these guys has elements of several other superheroes in them right like uh, icon is not just superman but he is also very much about kind of like the american dream right so he's got some captain america in him too um, and he's also got, you know, his own kind of reluctance, right? Like he is not, unlike, uh, you know, Superman or Captain America, his vision of what America is uh, and what America should be are considerably farther apart, <laughs> right? Than, uh, you know, he, he has the ideals, the goals of America that he thinks are, you know, completely uh, fine and upstanding and true. But, uh, you know, he is very much aware how far away America is from actually living up to those standards. Right. And then hardware is, you know, he's kind of Batman. He's kind of the, you know, the, the, the gadgeteer, the brilliant mind with all of like the, the cool stuff, which also makes him sort of Iron Man and that sort of thing. Except, of course, as the African-American character, he can't be the star. He can't be the celebrity, you know, like he can't uh, maintain this identity of being, uh, you know, like millionaire playboy and, you know, gadgeteer superhero, right? Like millionaire playboy is not a role as a general rule that we let African-Americans play, you know, in the United States. So, uh, you know, his take on that storyline is, is, is very different. Static, of course, is their, you know, iconic teen character. Like Spider-Man, he's the one who's going to actually kind of be talking about the, the realism and uh, the, the, uh, how difficult it is to, like, maintain a costumed identity and also go to school and that sort of thing. DC doesn't really have any one character uh, that fills that role. Their teenage characters are kind of, you know, divided uh, uh, among a lot of teen sidekicks and that sort of thing. Um, though I guess you could say Firestorm is sort of uh, was was uh, one of DC's attempts, basically, at creating a Spider-Man type character. So anyway, those three were going to be the core of the line. Um, while they were doing that, while they were kind of like putting together the origins of each of these and the core stories, they incidentally wound up kind of like creating a fourth comic, a fourth line that was going to be their first team. 
And the group, uh, you know, Dwayne and Dennis and and uh, Christopher, kind of thought that like superhero teams were unrealistic. They couldn't really figure out how these groups got together, what it was that kept them together, you know, how, like, in what way, like a government would sponsor a superhero team or anything like that, or give it, uh, you know, any sort of uh, um, access. Uh, you know, to actually like perform their activities as a group. He said the only realistic way that they could think of, that they could like think to actually put uh, a group of uh, characters of color that would stick together as a group was like a gang, right? Like that was a, that was a format that hadn't really kind of like been explored. So the series was called Blood Syndicate. And it's basically the story of it is two gangs in Dakota City. Uh, one of whom has syndicate in their name and one of whom has blood in their name are basically uh, brought together physically in space for a fake kind of uh, uh, meeting for a fake, uh, you know, parlay between gangs that has actually been organized by the Dakota city police. And uh, they, uh, the Dakota city police having all of these, you know, like kind of city's top criminals, basically in one place, all of these gangsters in one place uh, goes in to try to arrest them and uses an experimental new kind of tear gas uh, in order to, you know, like pacify them before going in. And of course this experimental new tear gas turns out to be mutagenic and all of the gangsters who kind of like survive this first clash uh, between them uh, wind up getting superpowers as a group. And so kind of like realizing that the police are their common enemy and both of their numbers have been decimated by the ones who did not survive contact with this, uh, with this radioactive tear gas. Um, the two gangs come together and form a single gang uh, that is, you know, kind of like a, a, a uniting of their, their uh, names, which is how the name Blood Syndicate comes from. Um, and that would then be the story of this group of like antiheroes who had come together in this, you know, kind of like awful circumstance and would, uh, you know, kind of tell this story going forward. And so those were the four titles that they wound up launching Milestone Comics with. Now, Milestone was kind of a new thing for DC, right? DC had not really done any kind of like partnerships. Um, with uh, uh, with other publishers had never been, you know, like handling distribution or anything for them. Um, so this was kind of an experiment on DC's part. DC, by contract, had no editorial control over Milestone, except at the very last point, right? They had no uh, ability to kind of like interfere earlier in a process. The only way that they could exert any editorial control over Milestone was to simply not ship the book when it was ready to go, right? They didn't get a chance to look at it before that, right? So there was no kind of like interference creatively in the process. The DC's only recourse, if they had a problem, was basically to say, we're just not going to ship that title. And they assumed, of course, that this wasn't going to come up, that, you know, they had this, the, the, the Bible that they were working from that had all been approved in advance. Um, but that was basically DC's only, uh, on, only option that was kind of like left to them legally on purpose. Milestone was very, you know, uh, kind of uh, set on that point, right? Um, Milestone kept copyright on all of this stuff. Um, and they handled all of their own merchandising and licensing of the characters and that sort of thing. So the, you know, t-shirts and, and whatever was all done by Milestone. DC basically handled 
sales and shipping and production, uh, actual printing, right? And they did that in exchange for both a share of the profits that Milestone made and an annual fee on top of that in case it wasn't profitable, right? So there was a cash payment that went out, uh, you know, at every year, no matter what. And then if Milestone were profitable, a percentage of those profits were also handed on to DC. DC had a, you know, had, had, took a share of that, basically. Um, and then DC paid for all of the shipping, all of the production, all of the, uh, you know, all of that out of its, out of its share. So uh, this is, you know, a very kind of uh, 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 exciting time, a very kind of like unsettled time in the comic book market for all of this stuff to be happening, right? It's the early 90s where all of this is being put together. And uh, right around the same time that Milestone is first starting to get its press and its announcements is when Image is happening. And if you go back to our Image, uh, you know, history for it, it'll kind of, you know, like give you an idea of just how kind of up in the air a lot of things were uh, with a lot of creators that were leaving uh, the big two um, to, you know, go solo, basically, to, uh, you know, to, to join up with Image. And so it's kind of unfair like milestone got swept up in the uh you know in the press basically as being like image when in the end they really weren't right like they were a group that were working together image was a collection of multiple studios that barely got along with each other right and you know like had a, a set way that they were working together um but were not they were not a team Right, they were not, uh, you know, kind of like coming together to form a company. Whereas Milestone very much wanted to be a company like DC or a company like Marvel. Their goal was to just do it on purpose, rather than the kind of, uh, you know, uh, organic way that Marvel and DC actually, you know, kind of formed. Right? They were like, we're gonna, you know, understanding the market as it is today, we're going to build a company that appeals to that market and that can fit into that market and is creatively satisfying to all of us. Um, and you know we we will uh, own own like shares of it, but it was a time when there was so much else going on. So many other indie publishers were hitting. Milestone kind of got swamped from a marketing perspective. The other disadvantage was that Image had a head start. By the time Image actually kind of like made its announcements and was putting stuff together, several of their titles were ready to go. Right, like out the door. Savage Dragon was ready. Uh, Spawn was ready. Right, like those titles actually like hit. And Milestone took a while to get its first titles out the door, starting, you know, counting from the time that they were kind of like first making their announcements about existing, right? So by the time they actually got their titles, their first titles out, they were definitely kind of like feeding them into a tidal wave of new indie titles that were coming from a wide range of different publishers. And so it was very difficult for them to kind of like get... Uh, uh, you know, press and to kind of like be seen as something different from the other indie stuff that was coming out. Um, nevertheless, it was a reasonable hit, right? DC was perfectly satisfied at, at first with the sales that they were getting from Milestone. The titles were solid mid-list titles that were, you know, like making money. They weren't making as much money as you know, like the big deal DC and Marvel, and they certainly weren't making as much money as Image during the time that Image was, you know, exploding. But they were, you know, solidly in that kind of like fifth, sixth, seventh place, uh, you know, like list of publishers. So they were, you know, they were doing all right. Uh, 
1994, after the, their titles had been coming out for about a year and a half. And keep in mind, at this point, since Christopher wasn't there, that uh, uh, Dennis and Dwight were writing everything. And really, Dwight was writing more than Dennis. Um, and so, you know, he, he had basically scripted, uh, you know, the first year, year and a half of each of these four titles. And that's a lot of stuff to, to, to come out, right? Um, but by 1994, they were sufficiently kind of established. Their titles were all running. Um, they kind of did a launch of their next set of titles and started with a series-wide crossover that was called Shadow War. Uh, which was, you know, took place over all four of the comics that they were publishing, um, and then led to two more new titles coming out of the events of Shadow War that were called Shadow Cabinet uh, and Zombie. And these were two new kind of, you know, like character line, character concepts, basically, um, that, you know, kind of were launched from the Shadow War plot. Uh, a seventh title called Cobalt came out later in 1994 as well. So by that point, they were now doing seven titles monthly-ish, right? Like they were supposed to be monthly. Uh, they didn't always kind of, you know, like hit the schedule there. So it was, uh, you know, if you look back over the years of that period, they come out more like, you know, 10 a year, exactly than 12, right? They were just, uh, you know, sufficiently behind on a number of things. Um, and then at the end of 1994, DC steps in to help promote them. And say, you know, like this is this is our thing. We really want this to work. We really want this to take off, and we want to do a crossover between the DC universe and the Dakota universe, right? And that series was called uh, Worlds Collide, and basically that was an introduction to a lot of DC fans who had not necessarily picked up, uh, you know, what Milestone was doing. Basically, they got to actually see Icon meet Superman, and you know, these characters to do these uh, uh, various crossovers. Um, once again, this was, in my opinion, exceedingly well written for the kind of stuff that was, uh, you know, being put out at the time. Um, it was generally smarter. Yes, it had that kind of like edge of, you know, dark, grim and gritty superheroes that was, uh, you know, just kind of like endemic across indie titles at that point. You know, with, 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 as we say, with titles like, uh, you know, Spawn and Savage Dragon and that sort of thing uh, were coming out. It was like that, but it was better, right? Like it was smarter, it was hipper, there was more, it was more interesting stuff. Unfortunately, uh, at the end of 94, just as DC was putting all of this promotion into Worlds Collide, is basically when the market collapses, right? Historically, that's when the, you know, kind of like the collector's bubble begins to like pop. And a lot of indie retailers, a lot of, um, you know, uh, comic shops are just extended too far and start to go out of business themselves. And a lot of indie titles aren't selling. A lot, the, the market is just flooded with material that nobody wants. Everybody has overbought that material, and so there's a lot of money tied up in stock that is just not moving. Um, and Milestone is hit right in the face with it, right? They had not really had the time to establish themselves, um, and they were, you know, um, struggling with sales. Um, Michael Davis and Dennis Cowan leave Milestone in 1995 the beginning of 1995, they go to form a company or to work with several other people at a company called Motown Machine Works that will eventually be subsumed into, or Motown Machine Works will kind of like go away and basically those guys will eventually wind up as part of Image 
since image you know survives this right like coming out the other side of the market instability of the mid 90s um, they wind up joining up with image so 1995 sales are plummeting um you know every the not across the board it's not just milestone everybody is is suffering and at this point uh static number 25 comes out so static has been one of the titles that has uh, you know like been pretty consistent across the board it was kind of the, the the hit of the of the run and it has put out 25 issues in you know 28 or 29 months right like it's been pretty consistently out the door and it sold very well issue number 25 uh, was the uh, Static Has Sex story, right? Like Static is a, you know, 16-year-old kid at this point, And, you know, the, the the title was running more or less in real time. It really wasn't, but he was still, you know, 16, 17 at this point. And he and his girlfriend have reached the point where they are ready to have sex. The uh, cover of the title, um, original cover of the title is just a picture of Static and his girlfriend in their civvies, basically, uh, making out on the couch. And on the table near them is a very prominently displayed pack of condoms, which, you know, they felt was kind of like a key part of the story that they were telling that, you know, this was, uh, this was, you know, Static was going to be uh, uh, performing safe sex, right? Uh, DC had a bunch of problems with this and uh, basically forced them to change the cover um, and and take it off. Now, like DC couldn't do that. They couldn't force them to do that because once again, they didn't have the editorial right, but they came, you know, like late in the process, having seen this put together and said, you know what, if you try to send that out the door with that cover, we will stop production. That's the one thing that we can do uh, to, to get involved in this. And, uh, you know, uh, Dwayne was basically stuck with like how how do we handle that? Um, so they basically went ahead and they did change the cover, and then they printed the original cover inside, uh, you know, next to the letters page. And in the letters page, uh, Dwayne basically wrote an essay um, describing what had happened and why DC, you know, like had almost stopped this title, etc. And basically calling out several people at DC for what he considered their backwards attitude. Uh, about uh, you know sex in uh, mainstream comic, including naming Paul Levitz by name, and Paul did not take that well. Paul did not consider himself to be racist. Paul did not consider himself to be you know uh, in in any way uh, doing anything other than kind of you know like maintaining a certain standard that he had been, had you know kind of like passed down from above him, and to be kind of you know like called out as uh, uh, you know, sexually backwards and also, you know, like maybe having more problem with black people being sexual than white people being sexual, considering that Paul Levitz had apparently had no problem with, for example, uh, Nightwing and Starfire having sex in Teen Titans, um, which, you know, got past all of the, you know, censors at DC just fine. Um, you know, it, it turned into a fairly ugly uh, shooting match in, in public, right? Um, and this was kind of, some say, this is kind of the beginning of the end of the relationship with, with, uh, with DC. Um, they, you know, the, the, the relationship between the two companies kind of like very quickly went sour after that. Um, and so, you know, DC, they, they kind of like started looking at how they were uh, handling this and decided that, uh, the, they were going to wind Milestone down, right? Like Milestone was not making them any money. 
they did not want to continue. They basically were just not going to renew their contract. And so within a few issues after uh, this, you know, kind of like situation, most of the milestone line was canceled and all of it was canceled within the year. While this was working, while this was kind of like happening, uh, Dwayne had reached out to his old buddies at Marvel. He still had close friends at Marvel, um, including Mark Gruenwald uh, in particular, to see if this was a thing that uh, that he could move Milestone over to Marvel, which was clearly not going to work. Marvel was not really interested in that. But then wanting to keep his team together, he was like, well, what if we took on some portion of the Marvel line? Right. And so Mark Grunewald had kind of, you know, like reached out to, to do this because this is the time when Marvel is starting to go through their bankruptcy. And they were also reaching out to indie creators like Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee and people like that who were going to be taking over some of their uh, titles. Right. That Marvel was was not going to be producing anymore. This is the whole, you know, like Heroes Reborn foolishness is going on. So. As DC's uh, exclusive com- contract is kind of like coming to an end in 1995, Wayne and Mark Grunewald and Tom DeFalco basically sit down and create a set of interlocking Marvel Universe titles that they would take over, that Milestone creators, artists, and, and writers would take over, and it would become kind of like a mini universe within the Marvel Universe. And then Milestone would do all of the packaging and all of the creation, and then Marvel would publish. Um, the titles, you know, similarly to way the way that DC had been doing for Marvel, uh, D- DC had been doing for Milestone, and Marvel had been doing for like Event and Chaos and that sort of thing. So they were all very excited about like working together on this. And so their original plan was that it was going to give them, at long last, Dwayne was going to get the chance to write Luke Cage, uh, Hero for Hire was going to be part of this. There would be a radical reworking of Shang Chi uh, that was going to be called Deadly Hands. And that would be, you know, like part of this. They would actually take one of the uh, New Universe titles um, that had long since been canceled when New Universe died, called Cyhawk, and put that back in the, you know, put that into the Marvel Universe, basically, uh, you know, like carry that forward as part of their line. And then there was going to be a new superhero team uh, that would include some of the Shadowline characters from Epic Comics. And be led by Monica Rambo, who was as operating as Photon at the time, in a team that was going to be called Power Men. And this collection of like four titles would be the milestone line within Marvel. Unfortunately, uh, during this stretch, as Marvel was going through all of its, you know, kind of like financial crises and everything, this is when Tom DeFalco got fired. Um, and then shortly thereafter, when Marvel went through. Uh, handing off uh, most of the Avengers characters in The Hero Reborn, that's when Mark Gruenwald died. Uh, And so with nobody left at Marvel who was willing to kind of like push this project, uh, Dwayne found himself kind of like without any allies or without anybody actually taking his calls at Marvel uh, anymore. And as the new regime kind of like came in post-bankruptcy, he tried to pitch this stuff again and nobody at Marvel, you know, in the post-bankruptcy version of the company had any interest in doing this. And so... Milestone at Marvel died around the same time that Milestone at DC, you know, like was also officially coming to an end, though Milestone at DC had, you know, was wound down basically uh, contractually. And so Dwayne is now, you know, kind of like out of a job. I mean, Milestone Media still exists, 
but they're not putting out any new titles. Um, and he doesn't really know what he's doing. He can't keep his staff, uh, you know, like on board. He remains in contact with them. And uh, he still owns, he and the other Milestone owners still own the rights. So at this point, Dwayne has kind of like given up on comics for a bit uh, as the medium in which he's going to work. And he goes to California and he starts pitching uh, animated TV shows. And the first thing that he is able to pitch a couple of years after the death, almost three years after the death of uh, Milestone Comics, is Static Shock as a TV show to take this character who, you know, used to have a moderately popular comic uh, and make a cartoon out of it. And that, of course, goes fabulously well. Uh, You know, the Static Shock becomes a hit cartoon series, runs for five years um, and kind of revivifies Milestone as an IP management operation, right? The fact that Milestone owns Static Shock and that's making money, uh, you know, as in in a completely different medium, brings Milestone back to life as a company doing completely different things. Dwayne becomes a very valuable and popular uh, freelancer um, writing for other cartoons, right? Like once he kind of establishes uh, Static Shock as a, as a thing, as a, as, a, uh, as a title for this, now every animated series wants him working for them. And so he goes to work, he writes uh, with DC, he goes to work for, writes for Teen Titans, um, and then he wrote a couple of episodes for What's New Scooby-Doo. And then he is hired uh, as a staff writer uh, when DC launches Justice League, the animated series. And that is he that goes so well in the first season that in the second season, he is named story editor and then producer and runs the JLU line through 2006. And so this is what he was actually doing when I met him. Right. This is what was actually happening. I mean, I met him in October of 2005. He was in the middle of being the story editor and, uh, you know, like producer on the Justice League Unlimited uh, TV series. This is where I know him best from. Uh, too, yeah. I kind of miss, you know, I start reading comics probably when I'm like 10. So I pretty, I pretty much miss all of Milestone. Um, but I definitely like Justice League and Justice League Unlimited are just great shows. Absolutely. Yes. And he does a lot of the uh he does a lot of their later direct to DVD like inspired Justice League stuff too. Exactly. Right. Um, which is all just great. Like I'm I'm actually much more familiar with his work as a Did you watch Static Shock as a kid? Absolutely. Every, yeah. Every, okay. I, I've yeah. probably seen every episode. Right. There you go. Um Teen Titans also won. I wasn't a big What's New Scooby Doo fan, but like, you know. Well, he we wrote a couple of episodes for it, and one, you know, Scooby Doo made a bunch more money than pretty much any of Teen Titans or Static Shock. So, absolutely. Um, and then when he leaves, when Justice League Unlimited ends, he's continuing to get work over there, right? Like he's not, you know, necessarily doing that full time anymore. But he becomes a story editor for Ben Ten, uh, the Ben Ten Alien Force. He was the story editor for that entire season. And like you say, just once Justice League Universe was, uh, uh, just, Justice League Unlimited was over, there were several more movies that came out, and he wrote the scripts for a couple of those. He wrote the script adaptation for All-Star Superman, um, basically adapting uh, Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman comic into the All-Star Superman movie. He wrote the, the script that did that. Um, so he was, you know, uh, uh, quite successful. He was, you know, still doing that um, at least part-time uh, up until the day he died. Um, in 2007, 
basically at the end of JLU, before he did the movies and stuff, and before he did Ben 10, um, he kind of like got the urge to work in comics again, right? Like he had several things that he wanted to try and he's like, now I have, you know, this, uh, this, this body of work behind myself as a freelancer doing the animated series. DC loves me again, despite the fact that Milestone kind of like ended, uh, you know, in sort of a pissing match. Uh, most of those people at DC aren't there anymore. You know, it's been, 10 years at that point. Um, so DC considers him, you know, to be like a, a valued guy and they invite him to come back to write for them. Um, since he's back there anyway, he also picks up a couple of gigs with Marvel. So in 2007, he is writing both justice league and firestorm for DC. And he's writing fantastic four uh, for Marvel. Those get off two solid starts. And of course, as soon as he's got an in at DC again, he starts negotiating with DC to bring the milestone characters back, right? Like to, you know, like, Hey, static shock had this great TV series. Why isn't there a comic book about him? Don't you want to do that? And, you know, let's rather than uh, keeping up an entire, you know, separate universe on my own, why don't we just make him part of the DC universe? Right. In fact, let's bring all of the milestone characters into the DC universe. Let's have like a big event that does that. Right. And so in 2008, DC and milestone do a deal uh, that basically brings all of the milestone characters into the DC universe. Right. And static now becomes part of the Teen Titans and icon meets Superman again. And a bunch of other stuff is going on. These characters are all kicking around now. uh, While he is at doing this at DC, he is once again getting into editorial fights with them. Um, he has, uh, like I said, he's writing Justice League at this point. And around this time, DC is doing so many mega events, so many kind of like, you know, line crossovers and, you know, like big selling multi event titles, basically, that like he can barely get an issue of Justice League in that doesn't have something to do with one of the big crossovers. Right, like he he is forbidden from using a bunch of characters that he wanted to use. He can't have Superman. He can't have Batman. He can't have the Flash. He can't have like you know any of these characters that he wanted to put in Justice League uh, for this because they were all spoken for, uh, appearing in other stuff at that time. So he's working with a complete you know like backup team of Justice Leaguers. Right, the team of the Justice League that he wound up stuck with in like 2009 was like Vixen and Dr. Light and Plastic Man and a couple other people, right? Like that was like the level of characters that they were willing to give him uh, to write in that, at that period. And uh, he got into so many editorial fights that he wound up writing a storyline in Justice League uh, featuring a villain called Anansi uh, who had the power to kind of like manipulate reality and uh, was kind of like creating stories, creating like new universes, basically, and messing with the, the, the histories and the memories of the characters. And it was very obvious that he was kind of like taking the piss from the editors at that point, right? Like the, the main bad guy in Justice League was basically like an evil editor, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with cosmic powers who was like fucking with the characters, right? I, I remember reading this issue and it, or this, uh, mm-hmm. this, this run at the time, and it started off really like fun uh, i think it starts off with them fighting a mezo or the, yep, the robot. absolutely yep yeah and then it just like quickly devolves as the as the cast keeps changing out and then like 
the Anansi thing is just so weird. It feels so odd. It's so clearly he's just furious, right? Like he just is, is like, oh, you know, why did I get back into this? <laughs> right? As soon as I, you know, like left Hollywood again, came back here, I've stepped right back into like not being in charge, not getting the things that I wanted. You know, no, no amount of, uh, you know, outside success is able to kind of like penetrate the DC editorial offices, right? They won't give him the freedom to do what he wants to do. And so he, of course, being Dwayne, as he always has been, can't shut up, right? Like he, anybody talks to him about this in public, he is uh, always just forthright and almost like embarrassingly honest about everything that's happening. So he's appearing now on the DC message boards, which was not a thing that existed the first time that he was fighting <laughs> with them. But now there's message boards for DC, and he keeps going on them and telling the truth about things that are happening to the fans, right? And of course, DC will have none of this. That's they are absolutely furious. Uh, you know, when he goes on and describes having editorial problems with the management at DC, you know, that's there. That's that's unacceptable. That is, you know, not uh, that's not professional behavior. Um, the comments that he was putting in the DC message boards wound up getting collected and reprinted in a column. Uh, in CBR, the lying in the gutters column that Rich Johnston wrote. Um, and so an entire uh, essay of lying in the gutters was dedicated to Dwayne talking to directly to DC fans, basically, about how the Anansi storyline was about how little control he had over his own book and how he was regularly de denied use of the company's lead characters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to the point where, of course, DC decided once again, we are pretty much done with you um, and fired him from both of those titles. While he was getting fired from DC, you know, he is still doing Ben 10. He's still making plenty of money. He's not in any danger of being in trouble for money because he's still doing. And in fact, DC still keeps using him as a, as a script writer uh, for the movies and stuff because they don't have any problem with him. Right, but the the actual offices making the comics are the ones that seem to have the problem with him. He marries um, his uh, girlfriend Charlotte Fullerton, who was also a writer, um, in 2009, and goes back to Burbank and is you know once again working there full time uh, in, in uh, scripting and uh, uh, editing. Um, the TV shows, the, the the animated series, and it's there that he dies. He has uh, emergency heart surgery in February of 2011, um, and he pulls through that surgery. Uh, you know, but unfortunately, complications. Uh, you know, within a couple of weeks after the surgery, uh, do in fact actually kill him. He dies in a Burbank hospital with his uh, wife at his side and several of his friends by his side, and that is, uh, you know, pretty much where his career story more or less ends. Um, Dwayne was an enormously popular writer in the industry. Right, he was kind of like famous for saying things that an awful lot of people wished they could say, and despite the fact that he had this kind of you know like scrappy uh, attitude sometimes about it, and you know was just uh, uh, brutally honest in situations where it was probably politically correct not to be brutally honest, um, he was extremely uh, well liked by the people that he worked with, and so there have been a number of kind of tributes to him over the years. Um, in 2015, the Long Beach Comic Expo introduced a new award 
to their comics, uh, to their their um, convention, basically, uh, for diversity representation in comics for the best, uh, you know, like a demonstration, the best kind of like new thing for diversity in comics. And it was named directly for him. It's the Dwayne McDuffie Award. Um, DC, when they introduced, when uh, Brian Michael Bendis introduced Naomi as a character for DC, as a, you know, new kind of like key teen hero going forward who now has her own show on CW, et cetera, for it. Her last name is McDuffie. That's, that's not a mistake, right? Like that is an absolutely conscious tribute uh, to, uh, you know, from Bendis personally, um, who thought that uh, McDuffie was, you know, absolutely one of his favorite writers. In 2017, DC got back together with Dennis Cowan, um, who still was, you know, kind of one of the primary owners of Milestone. And, uh, you know, the Milestone characters had kind of been shoveled off to the side when, uh, when Dwayne died. They didn't really have anybody else on staff who was that interested in writing them. Um, but Dennis and, uh, had kind of put together the, the original Milestone group again, um, Derek Dingle and uh, Michael and a couple other people. And had also brought in Reginald Hudlin who had not been an original member, in fact, had not had, at no point had been a Milestone member to that point, but he was obviously friends with everybody that uh, was involved with this. And so uh, Dennis and Reginald and that group basically um, were working on doing a new revival of the Milestone characters at DC. And uh, we're going to bring in, uh, you know, like several new titles that, uh, you know, we're, we're going to kind of like reintroduce these characters and make them a big deal at DC. Unfortunately, that all got held up for a bit because they were sued by Charlotte, uh, who had, uh, you know, was the manager of Dwayne's estate and basically was like, how come Dwayne's estate is not consulted in doing any of this or getting paid for any of the characters that he had co-created, right, and that he co-owned? Right, apparently, uh, you know, from her, uh, this was denied by Dennis and a couple of other people, but Charlotte said, uh, you know, in public, we're not getting anywhere close to a fair share of the payments from DC that are going to Milestone that like are, you know, I'm still, you know, officially on the board of, right? And like, I'm the, I'm the manager of his estate. He's still a, you know, co-owner of this. And how are, how are you leaving him out of getting paid? Um, that suit took uh, about two years to uh, go through the court system during which time none of these characters appeared in DC, right? Because they were still like figuring out what was happening. Uh, between them. The suit was eventually settled at the end of 2019. Um, and terms were not made public, but everybody, you know, claims to be satisfied with this, with the kind of like the rearrangement of the money, whatever the settlement was. Um, so at the end of 2019, DC finally began the process of reintegrating the, uh, the, the milestone characters into the DC universe. And that's been a thing that has been happening pretty much straight over the last year and a half, two years in DC, you've been seeing these characters uh, showing up there again and becoming kind of a, a, a bigger, more important uh, part of the DC universe yet again. So all of these characters are, you know, have been kind of like restored, and that's the the greatest legacy I think that Dwayne has, uh, you know, left behind um, is the fact that all of these characters are still going and are still beloved. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Every once in a while, they put out. I think they were part of New Fifty Two. No, they weren't, because that was when they weren't. That uh, was during the time that that was during the lawsuit. I think so. Yeah, I think they were. They were very much kind of like shut out of a bunch of things that there were original plans to put them in. Um, 
But during the while the lawsuit was actually going on, DC decided better safe than sorry as far as that goes, and uh, you know just kind of like put put a pause on their plans. And once the suit was settled, then they kind of like took the pause off and said, okay, now we can do this. So yeah, it's still like such a new thing. You're not sure how this is going to work, right? Like, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not sure how strongly any of the new titles that feature any of these guys are, are you know, are, are selling or anything yet. It's really kind of too soon to tell whether it's, you know, fully successful, but at least they're out there. Yeah, absolutely. It looks like they're supposed to launch new stuff this year. I was looking at the website earlier. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I guess we'll see how that goes. The new design of Static Shock leaked out a right. little while ago, and yep. uh, he looks pretty cool. Yep, kind of looks like Jaden Smith. A uh, little bit. Yeah. But uh, all right. Well, thank you all for listening to, to us. Um, hope you learned something about uh, you know Dwayne McDuffie and Milestone Comics. Um, I've been Steve Tasker, and, and I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. This one's for you, Dwayne. <laughs>